BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Bill Press and Friends on the District Productive Network. How about it? Gosh, there is so much to talk about. Where do we start? We start maybe with the fact that we have a new Secretary of State. The vote was close. Tom Cotton was presiding over uh, the Senate, uh, and he makes the announcement. By the way, listen very, very carefully. This man is a United States senator, uh, but he actually um, has a ventriloquist that tells him exactly what to say, which you can clearly hear in the background. The yeas are 56. The nays are 43. The nomination is confirmed. The nomination is confirmed. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> We're doing the best we can. Uh, that was Tom Cotton? That was Tom Cotton. Not yeah. only does he look like Howdy Doody, he, he is literally a puppet. He is a puppet, yes, right. The famous for Nancy Reagan whispering in Ronald's ear, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> and then he smiled and said, we're doing the best we can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tom Cotton. But uh, this, is, uh, th- this is a disgrace. Rex Tillerson, I was thinking this morning, think back, think back. I mean, Secretary of State next to the President of the United States is the most important position in the cabinet. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, right, our Secretary of State. But think back to the more recent Secretary of States that we've had, Republicans and Democrats. Colin Powell, giant, right, man with great experience uh, serving this nation and great leadership in Iraq and, uh, uh, and in, in the United States military for decades Condoleezza Rice, a woman had a degree in Russian studies, um, a, a, a tremendous experience uh, around the country, national security advisor to President of the United States, steps up and becomes Secretary of State. And you look at Hillary Clinton, again, former First Lady, Senator from, from, from New York, traveled all around the world, um, a lot of personal experience in foreign policy. And John Kerry, a real pro, great pro, great Secretary of State. Uh, and done so much through his service to, uh, to this country uh, in the military as well as in the United States Senate. And again, had traveled around the world, knew most world leaders. And then you get this, what, what's Rex Tillerson? He's a billionaire corporate tycoon, just like a Donald Trump with zero foreign policy experience, except for making deals with some very bad dudes all around the world. I mean, the only experience that he has had in, in, in dealing with foreign leaders, is in making business deals with Exxon Mobil, with some of the worst uh, and most um, unhumanitarian, if you will, world leaders on this on the on the world stage. N- notably, and number one of whom is Vladimir Putin, whom he, whom he became great friends with. Putin even gave him the Russian Medal of Freedom, a friendship, as we know. And Tillerson making this deal for ExxonMobil in Siberia, a $500 billion deal, which is on hold only because of U.S. sanctions against Russia, because Russia invaded Ukraine, and Rex Tillerson out there publicly flogging the sanctions and saying the sanctions ought to be lifted. Why? So he can make all this money. And don't 
Don't kid yourself. Even a secretary of state, while he's put his stuff in a blind trust or whatever, if that deal goes through, Rex Tillerson is going to make billions of dollars in his, for himself, which he may not be able to spend for four years, but still, he's not going to lose that money. So this is a walking conflict of interest, and sadly, he is now the, sec, uh, the Secretary of State of the United States. He was sworn in last night. And um, with the help, there was a close vote, 56-43. More people voted against him than have voted against any Secretary of State in recent memory, maybe in history. But shame, you know, our hall of shame this morning for the Democrats who voted for Rex Tillerson. There were a couple, Heidi Heidkamp, Joe Manchin, Mark Warner, and then, of course, the independent uh, Angus King, who, uh, who voted yes. So that's four that should have gone the other way. Which I think is troubling because... If they voted for Rex Tillerson, I'm afraid that they might also vote for Neil Gorsuch. For we'll get to that in just a second. By the for, way, quick note: uh, Chris Chris uh, Coons did not vote. He did, he set the vote out. By the way, for Tillerson, Chris well, Coons has not been a uh, strong progressive so far in the Trump administration. He sat it out yesterday. Uh, in terms of voting for cabinet members, yeah. he's voted for a few, but well. Uh, um, a, a non-vote is better than a yes vote, but sure. still, uh, why not a no vote, uh, Senator Coons? Uh, there we are with uh, Rex Tillerson sliding through. Betsy DeVos may not be so lucky if there's anybody. I mean, look, first of all, said it before, I'd vote against every one of his cabinet nominees. I don't think there's one of them who's qualified, with a possible exception of Elaine Chow, because how much damage can you do as transportation secretary? Uh, I'd still vote against her just out of principle, because her husband's such a jerk. Uh, but I know that's not fair, but Mitch, Mitch McConnell... We're not playing fair anymore. We're not playing fair anymore. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Is it, is it payback? Damn straight. It's payback for Mitch McConnell. For all his, his his opposition dating back to the fact when he said that the uh, number one goal of Republicans was to deny Barack Obama a second term in office. Back to Betsy DeVos. Uh, she is uniquely unqualified to be Secretary of Education. She has uh, shown throughout her career uh, her disgust and her opposition to public education, to public schools. She has spent her fortune... Uh, on behalf of religious schools and private schools and thinks every public money ought to be taken from public schools and given to private religious schools. Uh, Sean Spicer yesterday telling us at the briefing, oh, no, no, no. He, he, Betsy DeVos, yeah, slam dunk. I am 100% confident she will be the next Secretary of Education. <laughs> Which... Uh, <laughs> Don't know what that's better based save, better on. Better save that tape. Because Republicans <laughs> are starting to abandon the ship. Susan Collins, Republican from Maine yesterday. Madam President, I come to the floor to announce a very difficult decision that I have made. And that is to vote against the confirmation of Betsy DeVos to be our nation's next Secretary of Education. Good for Susan Collins. She was followed on the floor by Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. But Mr. President, I conclude my remarks to make clear 
that my colleagues know firmly that I do not intend to vote on final passage to support Mrs. DeVos to be Secretary of Education. So they've got two, 52 Republicans. Two of them have now said no. One more Republican says no, and Betsy DeVos is toast. It's got to be another Republican there. Uh, that is, assuming that all Democrats hold tight against Betsy DeVos, which in this case looks like it will happen. Again, um, the, uh, the National Education Association and particularly the AFT under Randy Wine, uh, President Randy Weingarten, who was here in studio with us just last week, telling us what's so bad about Betsy DeVos. They've done an incredible job of getting the word out, incredible job of organizing teachers and parents and people who care about public education uh, around the country. And, and that's an important point. I just want to stress it again. We have seen this. You know, we are up against the worst president and the worst administration in our lifetime. But the power of the American people is still very, very strong. And the power of progressives and the power of the opposition is real. Remember that vote on the uh, on the that move on the to abolish the Office of Congressional Ethics. There was so much public response overnight. Overnight, they flipped on that vote. Look at the Women's March on Washington and how that freaked out Donald Trump. That he had to go bragging. He's still bragging uh, about the size of his inauguration, the crowd at his inauguration, lying about it because he was so freaked out by how many people turned out on the day after the inauguration for the Women's March. It is working. Opposition is working. And on Betsy DeVos, Lisa Murkowski said yesterday that she got, was persuaded to vote no on Betsy DeVos because she's gotten so many calls from all around the country about people saying this woman would be bad news for our kids and for public education. So, you know, we got to remember that. Right. This is a time for progressives not to be just weeping and my and and hiding out and sticking our head in the sand. This is a time to fight back. These calls matter. And that's the time to. So that's that's moves to the right. The next thing is step up and make sure you've made your call. Two oh two 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 four three one two one. That's the switchboard at the United States Congress. It'll get you through to any senator, to any member of Congress, 202-224-3121. Make your call, send your email or whatever to vote, to tell them to vote no on Jeff Sessions. And that's how President Trump started his uh, Black History Month yesterday. He's oh going to yes. Oh my God. Uh, he's going to um, now celebrate. Have a whole series of events celebrating Black History Month. What a hypocrite! Of course, who does he have by his side yesterday in the Rose in, in the Roosevelt Room? Right. He's got on one side Ben Carson. On the other side, Amarosa. <laughs> right. There are two leading African Americans. Right. There's no oh, Ellen, folks, no folks, Eleanor Holmes Norton. Folks, I know some blacks. Uh, yeah. Folks, mm -hmm. some yeah. of my best friends are blacks. Right. As uh, Seth Meyers said at the famous White House correspondence oh, dinner yeah. with Donald Trump sitting in front of him. Yeah, all my friends are black. Yeah. Well, <laughs> most, some of my best friends are black, yeah. as Seth Meyers said. 
unless the blacks are a white family living down the street, he's yeah. lying. Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, but think about yesterday. Who do you have there? A John Lewis, right? Maybe an Eleanor Holmes Norton. You know, a Maxine Waters, Martin Luther King Jr., or third, rather, whatever. No, Amorosa and Ben Carson. And he um, discovers suddenly this great African-American leader who is doing such great things today. Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more, I notice. (laughs) He talks about him, right? He talks about him as if he's, you know, out there right now just leading the charge or something. Someone should have said. I mean, Frederick Douglass has been around like a long time. He is one of our great leaders. Yeah, a great abolitionist. I've been to his birthplace here. I've been to his home in Anacostia, his birthplace out in, um, oh, in Maryland, um, Eastern Maryland, okay. right outside of Eastern Maryland. All I've been right. there where he was born. That's yeah. Harvard. His, his house that he lived in in Anacostia, I've been there. The little Frederick Douglass Museum in Washington, I've been there. He is one of our great, 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 yeah, leader, abolitionist. And Donald Trump just discovered him. I, I think he's, yeah. Someone needs Let's to bring ask Frederick him. Douglass in. Someone needs to ask Trump, who is Frederick Douglass and what did he do? Well, they did ask uh, Sean Spicer that yesterday. Really? Uh, at the briefing, someone did. Sean Spicer does not have a clue. Today he made the comment about Frederick Douglass being recognized more and more. Um, do you have any idea what specifically he was referring to? Well, I, I think there's contributions. I, I think he wants to highlight the contributions that he has made. And I think through a lot of the actions and, and, and statements that he's going to make, uh-huh. I think the contributions uh-huh. of Frederick Douglass will become uh-huh. more and more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, guys. You know what that means? Again. B.S. He does not. He is just dancing there, right? He doesn't, again, doesn't have a clue. Let's play the tape back to back because literally this is a puppet. Being recognized more and more, I notice. All right, so that's Trump. Uh And and statements that he's going to make. I think the contributions of Frederick Douglass will become more and more. Yes. (laughs) What's going on? Will become more and more? (laughs) What are you talking about? They don't know who Frederick Douglass is. They don't know who he is. And I'll tell you what, they don't know what he stood for. Yeah. Frederick Douglass is rolling in his grave. The idea that Donald Trump now would Wait, he's dead? He's not still among us? He's not getting more and more recognition as the days go on? (laughs) What? The idea, if he ever thought that this man... And and again, how is the the total hypocrisy of the fact that Donald Trump will be now pretending to be the best friend African Americans ever had and what is his signature accomplishment going to be this month? I'm afraid. The nomin- Well, first of all, it was a nomination, and I'm afraid the confirmation of Jeff Sessions, an outright racist, as the next Attorney General of the United States of America. And you cannot deny that. I don't care what he says today. You cannot deny his background. You cannot deny where he came from. You cannot deny what he has done. Cannot deny his previous statements. That's why he was rejected for the federal bench the first time around by a Republican-controlled United States Senate. And the idea that this man, Jeff Sessions, would ever be considered for Attorney General of the United States, that will be a black mark on the on the record of Donald Trump forever, no matter what, how many little phony events he has to try to uh, pretend Uh, that he is a friend of African-Americans and to celebrate African-American History Month. 
Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. I think uh, in the uh, briefing room at the White House, there are more people there uh, every day for the briefings that I have seen ever, or maybe since the early days of the Obama administration, even more so than then, I believe, and watching on C-SPAN because they're so damn lively and interesting these days. Nobody knows that better than our good friend uh, Jordan Fabian, who covers the White House, Chief White House Correspondent for The Hill. Jordan, how are you? You're, right. you're putting in extra hours these days. It's unreal. Yeah. Now, about this, uh, this call between... Uh, President Trump and the Prime Minister of Australia last night. He's had this whole series of calls, most of them like an hour long. Uh, re- reportedly, this one didn't go that well. For all the countries for us to be picking a spat with, Australia. <laughs> right. I mean, it's yeah. really, it's really wild. It's, what is ha- like? What is happening? I, I read something, and yeah, I, I take it with a grain of salt. But it, he had a ton of foreign leader calls. Excuse me. Um, He had a ton of foreign leader calls on Saturday, and this was the last one. So I I read someone say, "Well, he was tired and stamina, right? Yeah, sure. He has has the most stamina, the best stamina, the best stamina." Um, But he was apparently frustrated with this deal that the Obama administration struck to take in twelve hundred refugees from Australia. Well, they're they're in refugee camps near Australia. They are mostly from the Middle East, Syria, Iraq, some of the countries that were on the list of banned countries mm. in this executive order. So obviously he is not too thrilled about taking in those folks. But what the deal said was they still have to go through all the refugee screening that U.S. refugees all go through. And all of that. Yeah, yeah, 18 to 24-month wait, all that kind of stuff. And he apparently didn't like this. And then he got on Twitter and said – they struck this deal, the Obama people, to take in illegal immigrants, which is not true. That is not the case. It's refugees, different mm-hmm. set of people. So needless to say, he wasn't too happy about it. Apparently, the Australian prime minister pushed back, and then after 25 minutes, he said, I've had enough. <laughs> and there he goes. Right? And there he goes. And keep in mind, so but, you think might think Australia is just yeah. whatever. I mean, who cares? You know, Australia has fought with the U.S. in every single war since Absolutely. World War II. Yeah. They put troops on the ground in Iraq, Afghanistan more recently. And they are one of four countries that we have a very close intelligence partnership with. So we're sharing all kinds of secrets with them. Very close allies. So it's very bizarre to be picking a fight with that country. We must say that the Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, took the high road uh, yesterday uh, saying that um, there was nothing unusual about this call, you know, that we are always we always speak frankly uh, between uh, between the two countries. We have very frank discussions with our ally. I stand up for our interests and express our point of view. And American presidents 
do the same from their perspective. So, there it is. Just to run up before the the uh, suggestion that the president hung up is <laughs> is not correct. <laughs> he didn't hang up, right? How uh, do you screw up a call with Australia? <laughs> it just it's just you're right. You would think we've had a very positive relationship with Australia. It's a layup. Right, yeah, it is. But again, this goes to the the whole temperament question that was discussed on the campaign, where yeah, you know, it, it's you got to have a, you know the argument was you have to have a steady hand. You can't be, just be flying off the handle. And also, th- this is a difference between someone who has never been in government or politics and someone who has the government experience being elected president yeah. uh, you know a, 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 an alliance with an uh, with another country is different than a business deal but trump sees the, everything as up for negotiation so i think he yeah. sees this refugee deal as something that's negotiable but he doesn't really see the long term effects of hey we this could this this little small thing could end up being a big fight with a major ally now, the surprise that Sean Spicer pulled out of the box yesterday was that the National Security Advisor standing by, um, General Michael Flynn, on Iran. Um, his, his word to the briefing, you heard it yesterday, here he is. Iran is now feeling emboldened. As of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. Yeah, and he said that, and I'm thinking, whoa, what's coming next? And he just closed his book and walked away from the podium. What does that mean? That was... Yeah, that was wild. And so we're not really sure what it means is the bottom line. He said this thing, and it seemed to be uh, something of a red line that he's yeah. laying down with Iran, saying that if there are more ballistic missile tests, implying that there is going to be some kind of consequence imposed by the United States, whether that is military action, whether that is... More sanctions at the United Nations, more unilateral sanctions, we don't know. They had a number of senior administration officials come out to the briefing room at 4 o'clock in the afternoon to what they said was elaborate on this, but instead it was more of more saber-rattling language like we heard from the National Security Advisor without many specifics on what the response would be. So the danger here for the Trump administration is... You know, they're setting down a marker here, and if they don't respond, then they're going to look weak. It, it, it could be the same situation that President Obama found himself in with, when he, with the Syrian red line. And the chemical weapons. Right. But if he does act, you got to wonder, are we sort of getting closer to some kind of conflict? With By the way, Iran? earlier this morning, uh, this is when Trump tweeted about Iran. He says Iran has been formally put on notice for firing a ballistic missile should have been thankful for the terrible deal the U.S. made with them. And he goes on to say, Iran was on its last legs and ready to collapse till the U.S. came along and gave it a lifeline in the form of the Iran deal, $150 billion. That's according to our president. So could this then just be a prelude to scuttling the deal? Maybe. That's, that sort of seems what he's implying, but I know that which he promise, has promised to do, right? So that was He has true. promised to do it, but there is significant internal pressure from others in the administration to keep it because unwinding it would be a mess. I mean, with so many countries involved. So many there. countries involved, uh you got to think if they unwind it, Iran is just going to rush to get the bomb. Uh so you know, General Mattis, the uh the the defense secretary mm-hmm. is is one of these people 
agitating to keep the deal. And but but again, I I think this is another example of Trump sees something and as a negotiation, but it's a little more complicated than that. And how it will play out, we don't know. I mean, it, when when Mattis closed that book, it was almost like, holy cow! This we were we were here at the launching of World War Three or something. It was yeah, it, it was, was pretty. Uh, very yeah. unusual to see the national security advisor come out and make a statement like that in the briefing room. I mean, how many times, Bill, you were you were there for the Obama administration. How many times did Susan Rice or uh, Dennis McDonough come out or and, and say something like that? Or never, never. Right. And how many times did we even see them in the briefing room? Rarely, right? And when they did, it was always sort of a background briefing for a trip the president was making or or whatever. But no, no, no language like that for sure. Yeah, informational kind of rather than inflammatory. Right. Yeah. Oh, boy. Busy times for the Constitutionality <laughs> Accountability Center and President Elizabeth Wydra here who joins us in studio. Hi, Elizabeth. Good to see you. Great to be with you guys. How about it? Did Sally Yates do the right thing? You know, I think she absolutely did the right thing. Um the attorney general, and this is really important as we think about Jeff Sessions, the attorney general is the lawyer for the country, the lawyer for the law and the Constitution, not the president's personal lawyer, um, not someone who is there to advance the president's agenda. And so – In fact, he has his attorney in the White House, right? Yeah, there's the White House counsel's office, which you right. know still should say like, hey, I have concerns about this. But yeah. it's a different role from the attorney general. And in fact, none other than Jefferson Beauregard Sessions when he was questioning I'm sorry, Sally I'm Yates. Sorry. If you say it on the show, you have to say it the right way. <laughs> Jefferson Beauregard Sessions. Thank you for that assistance. Yeah, really I have appreciate to, it. I have to stop you. You know, I'm 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 a Southern California girl. I'm not very good at that. So thank you for the help there. Um, but you know, he asked her, um, and when she was getting confirmed for her position um, in the Obama administration, can you stand up? Sometimes people are going to ask you things, and you need to say no. And what she said to President Trump was, "No, this is not something that I feel comfortable enforcing, given my duty." to the law and the Constitution. But the White House says, I was there at the briefing when Sean Spicer told us that her um, one department of hers had reviewed it and okayed it and said it was perfectly legitimate. So there, how, for, how could she refuse to carry the order out and not to do so was betrayal of her position. Yeah, so that, I have to say that the whole um, process seems a little... Odd. So the Office of Legal Counsel um, is the part of the department that is supposed to review executive orders. And when they were first asked about whether they passed on this or not, there was this weird sort of hedge about they reviewed it for, um, I think, form and legality on its face, which I'm not really sure what that means. Normally they do a full and thorough review of the executive order. So something I think is going on there. It's not really clear exactly what. But she, as um, acting attorney general, um, said that she gave it the thorough review, thought about and she the, can overrule them, right? I mean, she has the ultimate word. Well, OLC, you know, the within her power, it's it's a very respected part of the process, and. Um, but she was saying that she gave it this thorough review instead of whatever this weird kind of hedged review that is totally un- unusual. Mm-hmm. And it's no one wants to really comment on it. We haven't gotten any kind of leaked behind the scenes thing. So I'm not really sure yeah. what happened there. But yeah. it's her job to say, look, I'm mm-hmm. looking at this. 
I don't feel comfortable defending it because of my duty, first and foremost, to the law and the Constitution. Well, for your reading of it, I'm sure you've read it carefully. Yes. Does it pass constitutional muster? You know, I think it doesn't, it, especially if you look at the language of it in the context of the endless campaign rhetoric that Donald Trump put forth about how he wanted to keep Muslims out of the country. He was very clear that it was based on the fact that they were Muslim. Um, in fact, Rudy Giuliani is on Fox saying, Trump came to me and said, how do we get this Muslim ban? And I helped him do it. And so when you put the actual substance of the program with the clear statements of intent to discriminate on the basis of religion, that to me is unconstitutional and so deeply out of step with our founding values of a multi-religious society, tolerance, and uh, the clear constitutional ban on any establishment of religion. So to come in in this order and say we are going to prefer Christians over Muslims is deeply contradictory to American values and also unlawful in my opinion. And yet, by the way, most of the polling that's been done on this, by the way, shows that the Muslim ban is polling pretty well. I'm not saying that's any reason to discount it or anything like that, but like there is, I think, a, my point of bringing that up is I think there's mm -hmm. an obligation for people to show just how screwed up this is. Yeah. This is not just all Muslims are killers, so we got to keep them out. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two points to that. One is that, um, you know, I'm sure there were times when plenty of people thought Jim Crow was, you know, a, a popular program. That doesn't mean it was constitutional. It was abhorrent. And especially during Black History Month, I think thinking about the way that our country reacted after uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction is something that there's is no, very relevant to today. There's no doubt if you polled and whether they did poll at the time that all those you know, separate facilities and and segregated schools, they were, I'm sure, in Absolutely. public opinion polls, supported every one of those, and, those and measures. And that's why we have the Constitution. We need leaders who will stand up for the Constitution because those programs in the Jim Crow South were unconstitutional the moment they were put in place. But we didn't have leaders to say that that was so. And so our constitutional guarantees need to be made a reality by um, people like Sally Yates standing up and saying we will not defend this unconstitutional law. And frankly, the courts. And we've already seen courts say that this Muslim ban is unconstitutional or, or I should be more precise, yeah. that it has a high likelihood of being shown to be unconstitutional. And therefore, that's why those preliminary injunctions were put in place. And how will this all be resolved then? I think it will be resolved in the court. You know, we've we've seen the um, limited immediate challenges to um, the way that the ban was put into effect with respect to the people who are already traveling, people who already had their um, travel approved, whether it was by having a pre-existing green card or having your refugee visa approved. Um, and then there will, of course, be larger and there have been already um, broader challenges to the ban in its entirety filed. So um, given that Trump has shown no indication of backing down, even in the face of people like uh, Sally Yates and the initial rulings from the court, I think the courts are going to have to be the ones to step in and say, this is unconstitutional. You can't enforce it. Mm -hmm. And the idea, I mean, there's no doubt where the Justice Department will be from now going forward, right, particularly once Jeff Sessions is officially in. Now we've got the acting attorney general, mm -hmm. right, who has said he'll enforce the yeah. But uh, so uh, back, that, back to, to Sessions, what is your read on Sessions and the level of opposition among Democrats? Um, is it uh, inevitable he's going to be confirmed? 
You know, I, I certainly hope not. Um, my organization, Constitutional Accountability Center, has opposed him because of his record on being um, opposed to our most important and um, dear civil rights protections. His um, he's got a record. I mean, right? It's, he has a yeah. record, and you know there. You know, I, I I don't know what it is in his heart. You know, you have some people say, "Oh, he's yeah, a nice. Right. Guy. He was nice to my family." I, I don't, you know, that that's not really the point. The point is that he has this very long record of being hostile to civil rights, hostile to voting rights, hostile to basically um, hostile to women's rights and the Violence Against Women Act. Um, basically a hostility to every part of what the Department of Justice does. So to put this person in charge of the Department of Justice is just um, abhorrent. And, you know, especially with respect to the Muslim ban, it has his fingerprints all over it. Um, he has been um, engaged in the same kind of Muslim scare tactics that you were talking about, how we need to push back on these stereotypes mm -hmm. and inaccurate representations of people based on their faith. And um, so it's very concerning. And, and because this happened after his hearing, this uh, executive order, uh, we really should have gotten answers from him about how he would react to that. I think we can all guess, given his history. But it still is something that there are many questions that were left unanswered by Jeff Sessions. But there is certainly enough on the record for uh, the senators to oppose him, and we think they should. Well, that very test that he gave Sally Yates about what you would mm -hmm. do with a with an order, a presidential order, that you knew to be yeah. illegal right. uh, is a test that he hasn't answered yet, right? How no. I, I mean, he and, needs to be able to say to the President Trump, no, exactly what he said to Sally Yates. People are going to ask you things. You're going to have to say no. Trump is going to ask him things that to do, ask him whether he can do things that are unlawful, pressure him to do things that are unlawful, and he needs to say no. And there's nothing in his record that demonstrates that he is capable of standing up for the law against, uh, you know, anti-constitutional bullies like President Trump. And on this Muslim ban during the campaign, I mean, he vigorously, when t Trump was talking about it, Jeff Sessions vigorously defended it. Yes, and he has, you know, um, criticized one of the major defenders of it, the ACLU, as being un-American. Um, he has attacked uh, Muslim advocacy groups as, um, uh, you know, given them all sorts of... Um, uh, bad names. He's been affiliated with groups that um, have really engaged in hate speech against Muslims. So it, it's deeply problematic to have this man in charge of the Department of Justice, which is really the part of our executive branch that's charged with um, ensuring that justice and equality for all are a reality. And there's nothing in his record to suggest that he is up for that job. Elizabeth Ryder is with us from the Constitutional Accountability Center, theusconstitution.org. Got it right? Yes, absolutely. Theusconstitution.org on this and many issues. Check it out. They do such great work. Um, now, let's get to the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> I guess the so do we do we really need nine justices on the Supreme <laughs> Court? <laughs> well, uh, sadly, I think we do. Um, you know, it's I, better with nine. It's yes. Um, and, you know, I I, um, I think what happened to President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, is absolutely unconscionable. Um, it severely undermined the integrity of the Supreme Court as an institution, politicizing it in a way that. The Senate has been politicized, but um, the Supreme Court has been a little bit more insulated from, not to say that they're completely insulated from politics, but um, it's unconscionable, you know. But here we are with this nominee. And so looking at his record, 
I have deep concerns about it substantively, particularly on issues of uh, women's rights, reproductive choice, um, also corporate personhood. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get into the you know specifics, yeah. I just want to say, especially following on the heels of the Sessions discussion, one of the most important parts of the role of the judiciary is to be a check on overreaching from the elected branches, from the president and Congress, being um, an independent voice to stand up and say, even if, you know, for example, a majority of people think that this, this discriminatory action is something that they support, the courts have to stand up for the Constitution against that popular will and say, you cannot do this under our constitutional democracy. And so in this time especially, I think we are looking at Neil Gorsuch to say, are you someone who can fulfill that role? Will you be independent and willing to stand up to the president who is nominating you to be on the Supreme Court and say, I am here for the Constitution and the law not to do your bidding and not to pursue any particular political agenda but to follow the Constitution and the law. And so we have concerns about that, and we think he has a serious burden to show in this process that he will be that independent check on uh, President Trump, whether it's for constitutional violations or these potential corruption allegations that we've been talking about with respect to his foreign business dealings Mm -hmm. being in violation of the uh, emoluments clause of the Constitution. So that's a real big concern, and you can't not take into account the backdrop of the way the Trump administration has been acting and the way that he seems completely willing to flout longstanding um, constitutional values and clear constitutional textual provisions that protect rights of religious minorities, structural rights, the press. So it's a real concern. When you look at the history of the court, there have been, there are several cases of justices who turned out to be quite independent of the person who nominated them, mm-hmm. and, and David Souter comes to mm-hmm. mind most recently. But you never really know until they get there, do they, Do you? Uh, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I think Republicans it, have gotten better <laughs> at rooting out the suitors from their yeah, perspective. Right? They, you know, want someone yeah. like Sam Alito, who I can't <laughs> think of an instance where he has oh, ever no, gone no, against, never, you right. know, conservative I- ideological preferences. Um And looking at Gorsuch's record, he has a very consistent, clear, conservative record. Um, And I think perhaps even more telling is Donald Trump said over and over that he had litmus tests. Yes. Right. And that's very unusual. A lot of times politicians like dance around. They'll say, well, I I would prefer I believe this. But they don't say I have a litmus test. He said that. Over and over. You have, to conc- yeah. you have to conclude that Trump had that conversation with Gorsuch, and Gorsuch said, yes, I will vote to overrule Roe v. Wade. Yeah, I, I, I mean, he said it over and over. He was very unpredictable in a lot of things he Trump did, also but said, Trump I'm was consistent. Trump a man of my word, right? Yeah, I, you know, he's yeah. been doing what he promised, so he said, I will... I have a litmus test for someone who is willing to overturn Roe versus Wade. I have a litmus test that someone will rule in religious liberty cases that if evangelical Christians will – in a way that evangelical <coughs> Christians will like. Yeah. And he had a litmus test that this person will vote um, to um, uphold Second Amendment right to have a gun for individual use and self-defense. So right. given that these are his three stated litmus tests, I think we can only assume that he is sure that Neil Gorsuch will – um, follow that. And 
that's concerning, I think, for a variety of reasons. Those of us who think that the right to choose an abortion is in the Constitution and Roe versus Wade should be strengthened and upheld. Um, but also, you don't want to have that process where you have the nominee basically guaranteeing a vote in a case to the president nominating him. Again, it gets the independence point. Sure. You want someone who is going to take the case as it comes and not pre- pre-guarantee um, to the president putting you on that you're going to vote the way yeah, he without wants. even heard the arguments in that exactly. case. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, would you like a little cheese with that wine? You know, that's what I want to ask Donald Trump and Sean Spicer and Mitch McConnell. Every time I hear them whine about Democrats not rushing to endorse and support Donald Trump's cabinet picks. The truth is, starting with Jeff Sessions, all of them deserve special scrutiny. Most of them aren't qualified for the jobs they were named to. And all of them, every last one of them, should be rejected by Democrats. And that whining, of course, only got louder once Donald Trump had appointed Neil Gorsuch as his choice for the Supreme Court, as if they expected Democrats to leap on the spot and endorse him. Mitch McConnell even had the gall to say that we expect our nominee to get the same treatment that we gave President Obama's first two picks during his first term in office. I mean, how dumb does Mitch McConnell think we are? How short does he think our memory really is? Republicans led by McConnell treated Merrick Garland like dirt. They never gave him a hearing. They never gave him a vote on the Senate floor. Most senator, Republican senators wouldn't even give him the courtesy of a handshake. And now they expect Democrats to roll out the red carpet for Neil Gorsuch? No fucking way. Uh, look, I hope Democrats treat Gorsuch just like Republicans treated Merrick Garland. No meetings, no hearing, no vote, no Supreme Court, even if they have to drag it out for four years. After all, the country is better off with just eight justices on the Supreme Court rather than let Donald Trump and Neil Gorsuch tilt the court so far to the right for the next 50 years. This is The Bill Press Show.